Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Hey, what's going on? Hey, we're here in another episode of the Chase the Face podcast. I'm here with Danny, super excited to collaborate and talk about these amazing things that she's offering out there. Number one being recovery. But Danny, before we always jump in, I'd like to thank the first responders, the men and women who are out there just battling for us, who are on those front lines, especially right now working that fentanyl epidemic. It's absolutely crazy, Danny. We're here in Arizona. It's taking our youth, man. It's it's asinine. So I just want to thank them for all they do for us. And well, thank you, Danny. I know your son's in the military. You have some love for that and for the first responders. And so let's just jump into it. Danny, you are amazing recovering addict, which is, I think it's awesome. I always hate saying that. I just think, man, we healed from that. We're freaking superheroes, you know? Totally. You're right. I mean, a warrior. I'm going to take this sideways because first thing this morning, I opened up your Instagram and I see that you're having a funk. You started in the day in a funk. For sure. And I love the fact that you threw out there that stinking thinking because that is 100% what we do in addiction. So I want to know from the time that you posted that video on Instagram, what has happened in your day? Well, you know, here's how I've operated in the past. I liked to create chaos because then it gave me a reason to feed that chaos with my addiction, right? Oh man, I'm having such a bad day. I can't believe I have to do the dishes and go pick up my kids. So I'm going to drink, you know, it was just, that was the cycle. And I did that for 27 years. I did that. That was just how I operated. I started drinking at 12. I didn't stop until I was 38. So I trained myself to create that chaos so I could give myself this big excuse to do these horrible things. Breaking that habit after 27 years has been I'm not going to say only 27 months in my recovery, but I'm only 27 months. I have my lifetime to go. So breaking that habit of how quickly and easily I can get into that thinking of, oh, poor pity me and just really living in that limited mindset has been, it's challenging some days. Some days I wake up and I want to have that pity party. I, I just want to throw the fit. You know, it seems to be when I have really good and great upcoming things in my life, is when I'm noticing this to be a trigger because I would create all of these things that I was doing in my life as an addict to make it look like I was important, right? Oh, look at me, look at all these things that I'm doing. And then I would complain about it the whole time. So I'm creating all this goodness in my life, but I don't need to use over it. I don't need to drink over it. I don't need to complain over it, but I'm used to that. So I immediately go into, oh my gosh, I just have all these things, seriously. I get to do all these things. I live an amazing blessed life in recovery today. And the fact that I have all of these things on my plate is a blessing because it means I get to be of service. It means I get to be out there putting my hand in the hand of another addict. It means that I have a gift. This is my life purpose is to give this gift back. So when I started writing out my gratitude list this morning, I went, oh my gosh, Danny, knock it off. Stop it. This is ridiculous. Even on my worst day sober, nothing compares to the best times I had in my addiction. Nothing. That's just, ouch. Oh, my kitten. She's crazy. That's just where some of the things that I've noticed that when I was like heavy into my addiction, even those days that I thought were beautiful and glorious and so much fun, 
I was just living in this place where there was such a dark cloud. So after I wrote my gratitude list this morning, I thought, oh my gosh, Danny, you have so much to be grateful for. You have so much opportunity. You have so much love, so much love to give, so much love in your life. You're sober, you know, and I just started paying attention to the good things. I had a warm bed. I had coffee. I had this ability to get myself out of that mindset. I have these beautiful tools I use today from all these people who've come together to teach me. I have a life to get up and live. You know, there's so much, what do I have? And and training myself to get out of that mindset and into what is happening for me instead of what is happening to me, you know, it's just, it's a day by day thing. It's a day by day thing. And so I (laughs) turned on my music and I went about my morning and I posted that video. I had a lot of people respond and say, Hey, thank you. You know, I think there's something about that real element. I like to get on Instagram and I like to be a goofball and I like to do the fun reels and all that crap. But I also like to be real. And I think that there's something really powerful in bringing that kind of element to other people saying, Hey, like my morning started really crappy. And it's because that was where my perception was at. But if you change it, it doesn't have to be that way. So tell me this, because you haven't always thought this way, because I'm hearing this 27 years in active addiction. That's a lot. And not only that, but it's super ruddy, right? When we get into active addiction, we get into these ruts. We get into these funks, man. And I mean, I just lived in the Sholo, which is a, a town in Northern Arizona and the elk. They just, they, they're very ruddy, right? They walk the same path. They're kind of creatures of habits. And they have these just traction that they've dug in over time under stress and under running and all that. And I look at it the same way in our addiction, like we're very ruddy. We create these roadmaps to our brain and to our lives. And you've been sober for two years, 27 years compared to two years sobriety, right? Which, how have you made that transition? I wouldn't say it's seamlessly because people don't get to see what you're like away from the screen. There are days I know for you, Danny, and for me, they're just tough where we cried ourselves to sleep and it was sucked. I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? This is so stupid. But what made you persevere through that? Because today you stand here two years sober. The first thing I had to do was get sober. And I didn't know that that was a problem. I didn't know. I just thought it was what I did, you know, until eventually it was like, if I don't make a change, I'm never going to make a change. You know, it was like you said, you're just living that cycle. And so I got sober. And when I got sober, that was the biggest realization of, oh my God, I've never gotten to know my true authentic self because I started drinking at 12 years old. So who am I? I don't even know who I am. Right. So that was the first thing that started floating around. Second was now what? Oh my gosh, now what? (laughs) You know, how do I be me? Who is me? How do I be me? And now what? So I got sober and for the first 90 days, I just was on this pink cloud of, oh, I'm such a badass. I could do this by myself. I don't need nobody's help. The truth of the matter was, is after that 90 days passed, that pink cloud subsided. It was like doomsday. I vividly remember the day sitting there in my bedroom, just feeling absolutely defeated going, oh my God, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I need help. And so I created my Instagram. I literally put feelers out there and said, Hey, I need help. I I don't know how to do this. And I would watch people in the background. You know, I started following a ton of sober accounts or recovery based accounts, whatever. And I just started watching these people and what they do and how they were connected and the support that they had and the fellowshipping and the camaraderie and the love and so much. And I just thought, oh my God, I want that. And so 
then it was, okay, well, now what? Now I know I need to learn how to stay sober. So I joined a 12-step program. I got an amazing sponsor. She set me through the program. And, you know, that for me, that was AA. And that was a huge game changer for me in so many ways. A, it gave me the tools I needed. B, it gave me a fellowship and sisterhood that I hadn't had before. And C, it opened up this gateway, which catapulted me straight into my recovery. So for me, sobriety and recovery are very different. My sobriety was me staying sober. My recovery is the bread and butter of my self-awareness and healing the trauma and self-love that I never had and being a responsible adult and having boundaries and being able to communicate, being able to accept love. There's so much about what recovery entails for me that even after I completed the 12 steps, I, I it still threw me back in my chair and I went, oh my gosh, I'm just this girl who was 12 years old that's healing from all of this extreme childhood trauma that masked it all with drugs and alcohol. And now I'm an adult and a mom and I've gone through all these marriages and I've hurt all these people and I've probably damaged my children and I have severely damaged myself. So it was like, I really had to get into what recovery meant for me. And so I just started taking every little bits of pieces I could. I got an amazing mentor who really helped me understand my journey and recovery and what that looked like for me as far as healing my trauma. So I was able to kind of dig in there a little bit and bring up some trauma. I did a little bit of EMDR, not much. I only went to a few sessions. Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have all the money in the world. Pretty expensive. But for anybody who's ever considered it, I highly recommend it. It's a great way to surface things that you, you know, subconsciously that our body holds on to that we're not even cognizant. We don't know what's there because we're just so used to how we are. Anyway, EMDR is a great form of therapy. I stayed true to my tools with the 12 steps. I got really involved within the community of recovery. I did the coaching. I had a mentor. And then I really started healing in that. I was able to discover more of my authentic self and what that looked like. And I had to make some really big changes in my life, really big. I had been struggling in a in a long marriage and I drug my ex-husband through the mud. And so I had to let go of that. And I had to, you know, just continue on with that healing of my childhood trauma and all the things I had done and find that self-love forgiveness, totally surrender, get out of my own damn will and say, okay, whatever is meant for me, God will bring to me. And I just have to stay out of my way and follow that path. And so that's just sort of what I continue to do every day. Okay, that's craziness because I'm hearing you. We have a similar maybe backstory where I didn't start at 12, but I went through all the marriages and I felt like there were times where it was just so much insurmountable odds against me. And I'm like, how am I going to fix all this? Like, how am I going to three marriages? My kids are offended and hurt and destroyed those relationships. Like, and now you're telling me I got to go backwards. I got to start healing. I got to start fixing. But for me, it almost felt like I needed to fix those people first because I offended them. But I realized in my recovery that I had to, I had to fix me. I couldn't even like even offer up a suggestion to my kids or my exes until I, I started working on me. Tell me really quick, maybe it's not as important, but how did you start drinking and how did your addiction start at 12? I'll try to keep this as short as I can. So my parents got married. They had me not too long after they got married. And then about 18 months later, they had my little brother. 
my parents were your typical hippie couple. They dabbled in, you know, whatever drugs they dabbled in. My dad traveled. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My little brother, somewhere around six months old, got real sick. And by 18 months, unfortunately, he got a misdiagnosed ear infection that turned into spinal meningitis. He got pneumonia, went into a coma, and then he passed away. And so ultimately, I believe that is what threw my parents not only into a divorce, but threw both of their addictions into overdrive. So now my dad moved away and my mom got into a new relationship with the man that I refer to as my abuser. He was very heavily into methamphetamines and he was an alcoholic. So my dad moved to Utah and to, you know, for work. And it was then that they decided on me spending every other year with them. So I would spend a year with my mom and a year with my dad. Well, during the the six years, so from the time I was six till I was 12 years old, during those six years, every other year I would spend with my mom and, and my abuser. And, you know, they were heavy into their addictions. And, and we all lived in a tiny little 28 foot travel trailer behind my grandfather. I didn't have my own bedroom. I didn't have my own toys. I had very limited clothing and I was exposed to their addictions, you know, more so my mom's boyfriend or my abuser. He was evil. And you combine that with this addiction that he had to to meth, and we just became the people he took it out on. Six years old was my first experience at being waterboarded. So that was a fun punishment for him, hold my head underwater. And, you know, I would kick and scream until I was bloody from hitting my face on something. He smothered with pillows, you know, to keep you quiet. And that meant that we wouldn't have red marks around our neck, which was a common thing for me. I, I remember being called into the school counselor when I was in elementary school asking me what was going on at home because I had red marks around my neck. At any point, this man would find a reason to hurt me or my mom. And a lot of the times that he did hurt me, it was when my mom wasn't around and it would be the don't say anything to your mom, don't say anything to anybody, you know, or I'll kill you. You know, those were the things that I had to just live with. And so I immediately experienced trauma right off the bat. You know, my dad moved away. Now I'm in this situation with my mom and and this abusive man, and he's hurting my mom and he's hurting me. And so the years that I would get to go spend with my dad were safe. My dad was an addict, but he took care of me. And, you know, I had my own space when I was with him. So he quickly became my hero. I mean, just, he just became my hero. So the years I was with my mom were difficult. I always knew that there was going to be abusive involved. And so until, and so this went on, you know, until I was 12 years old. There was moments I would sit across from him at this tiny little table inside of the trailer, watching him blow glass pipes with a torch and a, it was like an air freshener that had, it was like a glass air freshener thing. Anyway, I'd watch him take it out, clean it all up, put it under the torch and he would twist it, twirl it. And he would sit there and do it in front of me and tell me that he was making art. So that's sort of, you know, the mentality that this man was in and cooked meth. I mean, I, they had a separate little trailer that they used to do it with. Like, this is the exposure that I had. This was a lifestyle that I was around for those years that I was with them in conjunction with the abuse. So that went on for those six years. And and when I was 12, my mom separated from him. And I actually introduced her to her husband when I was 13 years old, was hanging around with this guy. And she's like, Hey, who are you hanging out with all the time? And I said, Oh, this is my friend. You should come meet his dad. He's single. Anyway, long story short, they hooked up, got married. And so the abuser wasn't out of my life. I mean, that chapter ended. But at 12 years old, when I had my first chance to have a drink, I drank an entire 40 of Miller High Life. I'll never forget it. Where I was in a field with a bunch of boys, drank a 40, got completely wasted, 
realized that I could feel a different type of way. I got the attention that I didn't otherwise get at home. And that just threw me straight into, I want to feel that way forever. And so I did. I mean, throughout high school, it was constant partying, you know, drugs, hangovers, brutal hangovers. It was already affecting my life, already affecting everything I was doing, affecting relationships. I was all over the place. I was never living in one certain place. Not until my best friend's mom took me in and gave me a stable place to live. And I lived there for a few years and went through high school there and, you know, kind of experienced normalcy, I guess. You know, I had my own room and I had some kind of rules and, and they were just so good to me and they, they gave me that opportunity. But so, you know, it was years of, of childhood abuse and that type of exposure to alcoholism and drug abuse and addiction and neglect and feeling abandoned and all these things that led me up to that first drink I had. And once I had that first drink, it was over. That first drink ultimately gave me whatever it was I was looking for then. 27 years, full on addiction. What was the, maybe the turning point, your pivot point on why you wanted to get sober? Okay. So check this out. In high school, my girlfriend and I got super drunk one night, decided it'd be a great idea to get in her car and take off drunk. Well, we ran out of gas, got pulled over and she got a DUI. I got a drunk in public. I still had to go through all the steps of a DUI, went to court, had to pay fees, had to go you know, do the 12-step program, all that. I went to every one of those programs, every one of those classes. I went drunk. I went to court drunk or hungover. There was no stopping that need that I felt like I needed to have that alcohol gave me and even drugs at that point. So that was the first time I'd ever gotten in trouble with the law. And that wasn't even enough. I don't want to say smarter. I just got more clever in how I was hiding it. So after that, I got married. Then I had a failed marriage. Then that relationship ended. Still, my drinking was out of control. It was a very toxic relationship. Got into another marriage. Lost my dad during that marriage. He cheated on me all within the same week. And so I was just devastated. I quit my job. But my addiction went into overdrive. Didn't really get in any trouble with the law, but I was asking for it. I mean, at this point, my opioid addiction was in full-blown. I mean, my opioid addiction started about 10 years ago. So I really tried to balance that out the best I could. Uh, didn't do good. and so. Like I had all these moments in my life where a lot of poor choices were made, but I didn't get in any trouble. I just hurt a lot of people, you know, and this continued to go on forever and ever and ever to the point where it was like, well, I don't want to get in trouble. So I'm just going to stay at home and party. And so then I started drinking at home a lot by myself. And that's when the opioids were thousands of dollars a week. You know, I was buying them and selling them and it was just this whole thing. And Again, I wasn't in any trouble, but a lot of people were being affected. And I remember one day we were we were at the house and um, we were planning get-togethers because my stepdad had just found out he had cancer, and our family was trying to get together all the time um, just to spend you know family time together. My sister-in-law walked in through my door. She was staying with us for the weekend, and she looked just entirely different. She was like perked up and like had light in her and her eyes were big and beautiful and she was happy and she was just so much more alive. And I was like, wow, you look amazing. What are, you know, what are you doing? Whatever it is you're doing, I want whatever that is. You know, I'm thinking she's like, you know, on some happy pill or something. And she was like, oh, I'm sober. And I'm like, oh, what? Oh no, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> and I had a glass of wine in my hand. I was high as a kite on freaking Norcos. Like 
I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, like over the six months period that she had been sober, she had been already making such significant changes and you could see it in her. And so that night I went to bed and I just kept thinking about it after I had fought it, right? Her and I had sat down and she was like, you should give it a try. Just, just try for a week, maybe even commit to 30 days and just see. She was like, just try it. And uh, I just kept thinking about it. And I thought, no way, I can't imagine my life at the very least without being able to have wine. You know, I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning and I just decided not to drink that day or use anything. And I didn't. And I decided to commit to a week and then I committed to 30 days and I started to feel better. And I thought, oh my God, okay, I'm going to do this. And then so 60 days, 90 days. And then when I hit the 90 days after feeling great, you know, I was experiencing all these changes, like sleeping better, way less anxiety. I was losing weight. I was happier, way more present. You know, obviously I wasn't lying and coming up with all these excuses about why I couldn't attend events because I was so hungover. A lot more money savings. Like there was just these differences that were significant. I went, oh my gosh, I, I can't drink or do drugs ever again. And so, it, but 90 days is also when I went, oh my gosh, I am such a lost human and I have hurt so many people and I need to spend some time recovering, you know? And so it just all happened from there. 90 days for me was a big deal. What I'm impressed with is today you are a co-founder of an app, right? The Sober app. I know it's, I know it's very selective right now and I know you guys are getting it going, but, and then you have a podcast called Sober Uncovered, which is, goes into the app. and so. Do you find doing these activities, staying busy, giving back to the community, doing these podcasts, do you feel like they're a pool to help you stay sober? hundred percent. I mean, I think that being of service for me is so important because I was given a gift of sobriety and recovery that was given so freely to me. And I feel like that is my obligation to give that back to people when they want it, you know, and to be that sort of beacon of light of hope and saying, Hey, you know, my childhood was crap and I drank a lot and I hurt a lot of people and I made a lot of mistakes. And I mean, I'm 40 years old. I didn't think that I just kind of assume like, this is the way life is like, this is just what I'm going to do. I love being able to be of service to people to say, it doesn't have to be that way. I know it's easy to listen to. It's harder to do, but to not feel alone in this journey is so important to me because I did feel very alone in the beginning of my, you know, everybody around me still drank and used. Everybody. I had one person in my life that didn't. And so I did feel very alone. So it's so important to me to, to be that, that light for other people when I can. But there has to be balance with that. You know, there's so many amazing tools out there you can use that help with what you need to, to stay sober. And it's all different for everybody. But first and foremost, I really had to learn to heal what was going on in here. And for me, I kept pulling at all these external sources, you know, like, okay, this is filling voids. But the thing is, is that I was still really lacking in here. And so to have that self-awareness to go, oh crap, okay, you're still healing. And granted, I'm going to spend the rest of my life healing. I mean, I went through the first (laughs) three decades of my life in trauma, creating trauma. Like there's a lot to really heal from, but I just don't want to live in that mindset forever. You know, I don't want to be that victim forever. And I get that perception shift and knowing all of those things happened for me to get me exactly where I'm at today to say, hey, I went through all this. I did all this. And now I have this beautiful blessing of recovery. And I just want to give that back as far and as wide and as much as I possibly can. That's just, that's my purpose. So everything I went through, everything I did, 
was a purpose. And I didn't know that. So I had to understand that. And I had to learn how to love myself so that I can be of service to other people and do it wholeheartedly. Otherwise, you know, it's just like any other addiction. Addiction can come in any form, you know, whether it's shopping or drugs, alcohol, sex, attention. It can be, oh God, we can be addicted to, I don't know, organizing our closet a certain way. It's so important to me to have that balance in those areas so that when I am giving back to people, I'm doing it from a a place of, it's coming from a loving place, not from a place of, I need that, but I want to do this because it's so important to me. It's kind of hard to put that in words, that feeling. Yo, I get it though. Do you ever feel like, I was told one time, I felt like because I used so much that I had so much to be forgiven for. So I inundated people. I wanted to be of service so much that I realized a dead battery can't charge a dead battery. And I understood that now it's a little bit different is I have to take care of me so I can even be of service to somebody else. You find that as well? Oh, 100%. Self-love is so important. And for me, self-love means healing. It means having that meltdown this morning I needed to have and be forgiving. It means praying to to my God, to the universe and saying, hey, you know, I need some help. I need a little bit of guidance right now. Um, there's a lot to filling your own cup before you can start pouring into others. That's so important. People are going to hear this and be like, well, Danny's got two years of sobriety, right? Tell me something really quick. I want to know, like, when did you make that switch to where you knew that you were in love with yourself again? When I discovered that the little girl, I try to say this without getting emotional because it's hard, that that little girl in me who needed that love is still here. And so I had to learn to love her in order to continue to grow into, you know, my authentic self. And so I do that now. You know, I used to say all the time when my girlfriends would ask me to go out with them, you know, when I was pretty heavy into my addiction and and I would turn down the offer and I would say, you know what, I got to behave tonight. My bad girl's chained to the tree. And it was this thing that I used to say all the time, you know, she's chained up to the tree. All that was, was this very damaged little girl within me and who desperately needed to love herself. And it's taken a lot of solitude and guidance from a mentor to say, hey, that inner child within you is ultimately guiding me in my life today. And she really needs forgiveness and self-love. And so I started loving that girl within me and we're growing together. And it's kind of been like this evolution of self-forgiveness and not beating myself up in the moments that I still struggle. And really connecting with other people who struggle in the same area because we're human, you know, and life is going to happen on life's terms and things are just going to happen. Things are going to go down. And if we have a moment that's rough, don't beat yourself up over it. I just really have to turn a lot of that perception of any type of negativity back inward and change it into something positive. Because if I live in the mindset that I used to, that I'm not capable, I'm not worthy, I'm a horrible person. You know, I'll never account to anything in my life. I'll never be successful. If I continue to tell myself that, then that's all I'm ever going to be. And so those, that train of thought is, it creeps in for sure. But I go, oh, no, no, that's not who we are today. And so for me, that self-love really is a matter of just being in that deep solitude and sort of meditating on all those things and knowing at the end of the day, I'm a woman who was once a little girl that went through a lot and she did what she had to do to survive. And now that she's gone through all that, she has this big purpose. And that purpose really fills so much of that like ability to love myself. 
before we get out of this, I would love to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners about you, how they can get a hold of you, where they can find you. If they're interested in this app, would you mind taking some time on that? Sure. Yeah. So the Sober app can be downloaded for now on the Apple Store, Google Play Store. It's called the Sober app. It's a big orange app and it's written in white. Keep in mind, it's our MVP. It's a very, very minimal product, but we do have some amazing, powerful stories that we've done with our Sober Uncovered in there. And there's a lot of really great content from other people who've collaborated with us. And so there's a lot of that in there. Um, we're in the phase of rebuilding right now. So what you see is nothing like what it's going to be. Nothing. I can't spill the beans yet, but just know that it's going to be a game changer. Very, very excited. And then of course, my Instagram, my sober socially, it's sober underscore socially. There's that. But honestly, I mean, I'd give my phone number to anybody who needed it. Truly, if you're suffering still in any form of addiction, or you have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, or you have some sort of trauma that you're stuck in, I can't heal you. I'm not a doctor. I'm not anything like that. But I can share my experience and my strength and my hope with you. And I can guide you in directions that could be helpful. So if I could give my phone number to the world, I would. Usually Instagram, I have a TikTok. I don't even know what my TikTok handle is. I think it's the same thing. But you know, through the app, I have a way to, to get in contact with me there. I have my email. And that's Danny at the sober app. Um, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> say hi. We've been well fed. I love who you are. I love that you are. You're a testimony, man. Whew, I can't believe I got emotional there. This is real. I, you know, I struggle the most in that area when people ask about like self-love and what that means to me. And I struggle the most in that area is just really, it, it's not that I struggle. It's just that there's so much of that love there that's in an abundance now that I didn't have before that when it comes out, it's like, oh gosh, I just feel like that energy just like, it really is powerful and amazing. Um, truly my prayer for anybody who struggles with trauma or addiction or, you know, any hardships that they've experienced in their life can find that place of self-love knowing that you're worthy of it. We're, we're all worthy of it. You know, I just, my prayer truly is that everybody experiences that. It's beautiful. Well, Danny, thank you for coming on the Chase the Vase podcast. But you've been truly amazing. I'm going to put all your tags into the link. So if someone wants to reach out to you, they can find the Sober app. They can, they can get a hold of you. I think this is a, a person that you want to continue to, to grow with. So thank you so much for being on and for your time. So keep chasing the vase, guys. We'll see you next time at Victory Recover and have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.